Hello, money makers and money savers. Welcome to episode 44, The War in Ukraine. I'm your host, Dustin Dubé, and this is Finance Fundamentals, the show where we learn how to stop working so hard for our money and learn how to make it work harder for you. This podcast is entirely based on my experiences and thoughts. I am not a financial advisor, and the thoughts and expressions you hear on this show are my own and are not reflective of my employers, past or present, nor my guests. I am not liable for investments that you make or strategies that you implement upon listening to my show. Now, back to the show. So I'm trying something a little different today. This is a longer episode than most of my others, but there is a lot to digest here. And I think it's in everyone's best interest to understand this conflict and to see the history happening right before your eyes. This is a financial podcast, obviously, and we will talk about plenty of the financial themes and impacts, but at the end of this all, we are human. And if I can teach you something and instill some compassion in you, then the work going into this episode was worth it. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoy it. So unless you've been living under a rock, you've probably heard about the conflict in Ukraine. Russia has invaded Ukraine under the orders of Vladimir Putin. Now, besides this being absolutely detrimental to the people of Ukraine, have you thought about the long-term economic impacts? How this could impact you individually? Now, depending on where you live, it might seem like a world away but it could have some impacts in both the short term and the long term if you haven't realized. So this story is continuously developing, and I waited until the evening of March 7th to record it due to so much happening and continuing to happen in recent days. Do you know why the conflict is happening? Are you aware of the implications of these parts of Europe and around the world? As of just recently, the Russian economy was one of the largest in the world, the 11th largest in fact. Let's chat about all of this and more today. As always, let's start with the history. There's a lot to unpack here, so stick with me. Putin called it a special military operation, but as we soon found out, it was a full-scale invasion. Russian troops and tanks invaded Ukraine, attacked key cities including Kyiv, the capital, and the casualties are hard to quantify thus far, but what we do know is at least half a million Ukrainians have fled their homes. Europe is no stranger to conflict, but this is the largest war there since World War II. So why is it happening? Well, Putin has said he wants to bring the USSR back together. He stated that modern Ukraine was created by Russia. Thus, they are one people and part of Russia. Ukraine, however, doesn't see it that way. Ukraine is an Eastern European country with a population of around 41 million people. It's a sovereign nation, has its own political system, own cultural differences, The GDP is about $584 billion, making it the 48th largest globally. It has a diverse history, but today is predominantly a Christian nation with about 78% of the people being Ukrainian, 17% being Russian, and the remainder of other ethnic groups. The lifestyle is mostly lower middle class, it ranks 74th in the Human Development Index, and it's known to be a bit corrupt, has high rates of poverty, but it's come a long way in its short life. And if you didn't know, Ukraine only gained its independence from the dissolution of the Soviet Union in 1991. They have shared history, sure, but many Ukrainians are proud of their own identity and do not see themselves as part of Russia, nor does the rest of the world. The history of Ukraine and Russia goes back well before anyone on earth was alive. 
The Russian Empire was home to Ukraine in the 18th century during the Russian victory at Paltova in 1709. The Russian Empire had a long, strong history until 1917. The Russian Revolution was happening, the Empire fell, and it was followed by this brutal civil war. Ukraine was independent for only a few years from 1917 to 1921, but it was one of the first republics of the Soviet Union, and it was caused by a hostile takeover when the USSR, which is the Union of Soviet Republics, was founded in 1992. It was led by Vladimir Lenin, followed by Joseph Stalin, and a number of other dictators and leaders. Keep in mind Ukraine is a fraction the size of Russia. They really didn't stand a chance at the time. And Ukraine was just part of this first Soviet takeover. In the next decade or so, the USSR took over several other nations as part of its control. And the Russian-dominated Soviet Union grew into one of the world's most powerful and influential states of the time. It encompassed 15 republics. They included Russia, Ukraine, Georgia, Belarusia, as we know of Belarus today, Armenia, Kazakhstan, Kajikistan, Moldova, Turkmenistan, and more. The geopolitical influence was the next phase, where the Western world had a strong influence over much of Europe, France, Italy, the UK, while the USSR had a strong influence on places like Poland and Romania. And this divide was not drawn on a map, but it was pretty obvious during the Cold War decades later. The West was led by democracy, the Soviets led with communism, and these ideologies are still evident in those parts of the world today. And this was how the world was for several decades to come, until Eastern Europe faced a revolution. The USSR had a divisive history. It played both sides. They are considered to be part of the Allies in both World War I and World War II, and we can credit them as the key to the fall of the Nazi regime in World War II. The USSR lost actually 27 million people during World War II, with several million POWs dying from starvation or executions. And this was a key time in history. They joined together with the UK, the United States, and China, and were the big four allied partners. They became the four policemen of the UN Security Council. And Russia became a superpower in the 1940s. The Cold War followed, and the tensions and looming talk of war led to the development of NATO. NATO is the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. It was founded in 1949. Founding nations included the US, Canada, UK, France, Portugal, Iceland, Denmark, Italy, Norway, Belgium, Luxembourg, and the Netherlands. And the treaty was a promise to defend one another from invasion, as we had been in both world wars. During the Cold War, the USSR now looked at the US and UK, who were their war allies, as enemies. So they created a counterbalance. The counterbalance was the Warsaw Pact, which included the USSR, which encompasses those 15 countries, Poland, Hungary, Romania, Bulgaria, Albania, Czechoslovakia, which did split in 93 to form Slovakia and the Czech Republic, and the German Democratic Republic, which was East Germany at the time. The USSR supplied aid to the Communist Party of China and began a friendship with that key ally that they still hold today. Things were quiet for a while until a key shift in the ideology of the Soviet Union. Stalin died in the early 1950s, and Hungary was experiencing an anti-communist uprising in 1956. It required the Soviet military to intervene. And there was a tone shift, and in 1968 the Soviet Union and the Warsaw Pact allies invaded Czechoslovakia to halt the Prague Spring reforms, which was a political movement. The following decades were a little quiet. But the USSR became involved in various conflicts, including the Afghanistan Civil War in the late 1970s, and they stayed there until the 80s. The Berlin Wall fell in 1989. 
This is a key moment in history, and it was dubbed the fall of the Iron Curtain, and that Iron Curtain was separating the West and those Soviet-controlled regions. Various republics of the Soviet Union were pushing for independence. A law was passed in 1970 to allow a republic to secede if more than two-thirds of the residents voted for it. Lithuania was the first to do this in 1990. Latvia and Estonia did it in 91, and the remaining 12 republics were still governed by the Union, but the oversight was a lot looser. By December of 1991, every republic except Russia and Kazakhstan declared independence, and many credit Ukraine as being the final blow to the Union. They were the most powerful behind Russia. And on December 26 of 1991, the Soviet Union officially collapsed. Merry Christmas. Now, this doesn't mean that Ukraine has been completely unified since. Just like European countries and many other nations, there was a time of rebuilding and confusing allegiances. In more recent decades, Western and Central Ukraine tended to vote for pro-Western or pro-European Democrats, and pro-Russian parties typically got the vote in the Eastern and Southern parts of Ukraine. The Revolution of Dignity occurred in 2013-2014, and a series of violent events between protesters and police sparks the ousting of the President Viktor Yanukovych and to overthrow the government. The President was trying to establish closer ties with Russia. The Ukrainian people did not like this. He accepted $2 billion in bailout money, and it was apparent that he was trying to become closer to Putin. Numerous people died in February of 2014. In May of 2014, the European Union required Ukraine to secure an aid package from the IMF in order to obtain 1.6 billion euros pledged under the recently signed Ukraine-EU Association Agreement. It was a political and economic association between the two parties. And I could talk about this alone for hours, but let's get to the real heart of this. So why does Putin want Ukraine? Now, some believe this is largely a continuation of that 2014 conflict. Russia annexed Crimea. And if you don't know what that means, it basically means Russia proclaimed sovereignty over Crimea within its domain. In simpler terms, you are part of us now. Additionally, Russian-backed separatist forces would seize parts of Donbass, which is a region of eastern Ukraine, and Russia has been building its military presence around Ukraine's border since early 2021. They denied any future attempts to invade, but clearly that did not happen. So, remember NATO. Well, the founding members expanded, 30 strong. The Warsaw Pact naturally fell apart. As a reminder, NATO was founded in 1949. By 1955, they expanded to include Turkey, Greece, and Germany. Spain joined in 1982, three more in 99, seven more in 2004, and another joining in 2009, 2017, and more recently, 2020. Some of these member nations were actually once part of that Warsaw Pact, which you can imagine doesn't sit well with Putin or any others that want to see USSR reunited. And as the Cold War ended, the alliance on the other side of Europe continued to grow. Those 15 member nations of the USSR overthrew communist governments and many became important parts of the modern economy today. Belarus, Ukraine, and Georgia were the last of the non-NATO nations between Europe and Russia. Ukraine and Georgia have wanted to join NATO for years. Ukraine became a NATO partner in the 90s. They struck an alliance with the EU in 2013. When it came time to sign the deal, Ukraine's government refused due to its pro-Russian sentiment. Hence the revolution of dignity I talked about earlier, which led to forceful actions that Russia took. 
like annexing Crimea. Putin demanded that Ukraine never join NATO. They falsely accused them of genocide against Russian speakers in Ukraine. Fast forward a year into 2022, and Russia wasn't finished. Two breakaway states of Ukraine, Donetsk and Luhansk, were recognized by Russia. The day after, Russia officially launched attacks into Ukraine, launching missiles into Kyiv, the capital, and sending troops into Ukraine. Ukraine's borders with Russia and Belarus were attacked, both by land and sea. And the president of Ukraine, Vladimir Zelensky, enacted martial law and severed all diplomatic ties immediately with Russia. And these widespread impacts are really yet to be determined. This is an active conflict. What we do know is that almost 300,000 refugees alone went to Poland. A number of others are in Hungary, Moldova, Romania, Slovakia, and several other neighboring nations. Men 60 and under were asked to stay behind and bear arms. And the death toll of both military on both sides and civilians continues to rise. It's ugly, and this war is littered with war crimes, and Russian forces have attacked civilian areas and airstrikes have even hit hospitals. And if you feel like this war is hitting you different than any of the past, it's because we're seeing it in real time. Reddit, TikTok, Instagram, it's happening right in front of us. Anonymous, the organization, hacked the Russian media channels multiple times to ensure the people of Russia are getting the truth. Thousands of Russians even protested in St. Petersburg, Moscow, and many other key Russian cities. Despite the risk of arrest, many were arrested. Propaganda is coming out on both sides to influence the masses. Russian censorship is ordering the country's media to only employ information from Russian state sources, or they face fines and blocks. And they're accusing a number of independent media outlets of spreading this unreliable information. The world is standing with Ukraine. Well, most of the world. The president of Belarus is pretending his nation had no role in this war in Ukraine. But Russian troops march freely through Belarus, directly into Ukraine. And they served as a conduit for ground evasion. And according to the Resolution 3314 of the UN General Assembly of December 1974, the actions of a state that provide its territory to be used for an act of aggression against a third-party country is also regarded as a military aggression. The Belarusian president, however, is blaming Ukraine for starting the war and regularly insults Ukraine's president. But if you pull Belarusians from Chatham House, only 11 or 12% of them won war. Russian support was in the 50 to 75% margin, depending on which part of the country. So, besides them offering safe passage to Ukraine, why should we be worried about Belarus? Well, they're a much smaller nation, but they are closely aligned allies with Russia. And they share their border with three NATO members. And it's clear that Belarus is within Russia's influence. So how has the world responded? Well, the rest of the world has not gotten directly involved with the conflict, not in a militaristic standpoint. World leaders have come forward. The US, the UK, EU, Australia, they've all spoken against the invasion. Anti-war protests have broken out worldwide, but remember, Ukraine is a non-NATO member. The play instead is sanctions and economic impacts, not to mention significant uncertainty in this part of the world. The US has sent additional troops to neighboring countries like Poland, but why has nobody directly interfered? Now, besides the lack of interest in a war, Russia holds a massive arsenal of nuclear weapons. We all know this. They are threatening others who stick their nose into the conflict. We've seen incredible acts of violence thus far, and there are no signs of them slowing down. If you want the exact translation of what Putin has said, he noted, 
Whoever tries to stop us know that Russia's response will be immediate and will lead to such consequences that you have ever faced in your history, end quote. A bit bone chilling to say the least. And as of this weekend, Russia has fired a total of 600 missiles since its invasion in Ukraine began. Russia is no stranger to invading neighboring countries. Russia invaded Georgia, the country, not the state, in 2008. Russia recognized two breakaway states of Georgia to be independent states. They used these two independent countries to invade Georgia by land, air, and sea. The fighting only lasted 12 days. However, it did displace 192,000 people, and some never got back to their homes. Mostly ethnic Georgians, almost 25,000, still remain displaced today. And guess what else came out of this? Georgia never joined NATO. Are you trying to remember this conflict in your head, but just can't seem to? Well, it didn't get the attention of today's conflict, unfortunately. We were all a bit distracted with wars going on in the Middle East. Oh, and the 2008 Beijing Olympics. I'm not kidding about that. Our eyes were glued to the steeplechase and the javelin as this was happening, and there was very little international intervention. So what's happening worldwide? Some countries are staying quiet, it's not their fight, but the West is responding with force. We're talking about the harshest economic sanctions seen in years. Let's talk about some of these sanctions and the economic impacts to come. These sanctions run deep. They're personal. They targeted large banks, businesses, bank transfers, exports, imports, even specific individuals. How does this impact everyday Russians? Well, lines are forming around ATMs as Russians are looking to physically get currency. They have fears of electronic banking shutting down. The ruble, the Russian dollar, has plummeted to a record low of less than a penny. The Russian economy is heading down to a steep cliff. JP Morgan execs are expecting Russia's GDP to drop by 35% in the wake of the invasion, if not more. Bloomberg noted that Russian billionaires have already lost 80 billion and counting, and these oligarchs are feeling the sting. The wealthiest Russian oligarchs have set sail on their super yachts trying to flee. A task force was sent after these oligarchs to get their yachts, apartments, money, luxury assets, and to stop them from sending their children to Western schools. As of today, it takes 130 rubles to equal one US dollar. And if you own shares in a Russian company, you've likely seen them crash or even halted for trading. I forgot that I own shares of OGZPY. These securities are frozen. If you own them on something like Robinhood, they let their shareholders know of a couple of Russian-based securities and noted that they became untradeable. President Biden noted in his State of Union speech that the Russian economy has been left reeling from these sanctions. Not only are the national governments taking a stand, but individual companies are as well. Apple removed Russian media outlets from the App Store and stopped selling phones in the country. The largest shipping companies have stopped shipping to or from Russia, and this is just increasing the isolation of Russia as companies around the world are cutting ties with them. Companies actively seizing operations or at least speaking out against them include Disney, Nike, Lenovo, BP, Airbus, UPS, the list goes on. Netflix, TikTok, and American Express are among the latest to halt services completely in Russia. The West is trying to use economic pressure to stop the invasion. Russian athletes can't even compete in the Paralympics. And the big four accounting firms are removing Russia from their global network of firms. Some are even removing Belarus. And the employees have no voice in the actions of their government, but a stand is being taken nonetheless. Here's the kicker. 
The US, Canada, and Europe are tightening financial restrictions on Russia with a new ban that blocks seven Russian banks from using SWIFT. SWIFT is the global messaging system that enables bank transactions. This will change Russia's ability to even do business across borders. SWIFT is known as the Society for Worldwide Interbank Financial Telecommunications. It was founded in 1973, and it's become part of global trade. When a bank is a member of SWIFT, their instruction messages are cleared and secured almost immediately. More than 11,000 financial institutions use SWIFT, and they send around 38 million messages daily. There are some workarounds. There's something called the cross-border interbank payment systems. It's China's version of SWIFT, but only 1,300 institutions are participating. Most of them are indirect. Russia's biggest lender, Esperbank, ticker SBRCY, said it was done lending in Europe except for Switzerland, after banking regulators in Austria forced the closure of its Vienna-based EU subsidiary. Chances are most of you don't own that stock. But here's a little story that shows you how global the economy really is. The Kentucky Teachers Retirement was the second largest shareholder in Esperbank. The first and third were Todd Asset Management and Renaissance Group, both based out of Kentucky. Rand Paul and Mitch McConnell were pushing for sanctions relief on Russia so that the founder, who's one of these big oligarchs, could fund the imaginary mill in Kentucky. Since that Kentucky's teacher retirement invested $13 million in Esperbank. Numerous governments have frozen Russian assets. France is estimating that over 1 trillion of assets have been frozen, if not more. Moscow has gone into a series of emergency measures. They halted the cash flow out of the country. The central bank doubled its interest rates to over 20%. The stock market in Russia crashed and has not opened at all. Rosneft, which is Russia's leading oil company, has stocks that are down nearly 70% and dropping. So how does this impact you? Well, energy and oil are two of the largest changes. Little do you know, Russia is the second largest producer of oil, even ahead of Saudi Arabia. They also possess the largest reserve of natural gas. Thus, they are the largest exporter of that natural gas. This is the foundation of Russia's power. They provide over 50% of that Russian budget alone. They're responsible for 30% of the Russian GDP. And guess who buys these resources? Much of Europe. Germany actually gets over half of its supply from Russia, and a system of pipelines around Europe provides cities with critical heat in the winter months. Now, while Russia is padding its pockets, paying off its debt, funding its government, its military, its infrastructure, it's selling oil. The relationship maintains much of the European economy. Ukraine is largely dependent upon this Russian oil. Pipelines were built long before the independence of Ukraine. And as of just 2005, 80% of Russia's gas exports were heading into Europe, and they were going through Ukraine. Russia since has built new pipelines to avoid Ukraine, but guess where they built them through? Belarus. Saving Russia billions in tariffs and a closer relationship with Belarus. Now, if you want to understand how Russia has become so strong, it's because of these natural resources. But in early 2012, Ukraine discovered their exclusive economic zone, which is in the Black Sea. It could have over 2 trillion cubic meters worth of natural gas. Guess where this is largely located? Around the Crimea Peninsula. So now you see why Russia is annexing Crimea. First, they dispute that those resources are theirs to increase their wealth. Secondly, 
Ukraine having access to such resources would deplete Russia's overall position and power and their hold on European economies, as those economies are largely reliant on these Russian resources. Crimea also holds a major strategic ice-free port that allows the Russian Navy to now travel in and out of Europe freely. But it doesn't end there. This new technology was making it possible to extract natural gas from the drilling of shale rocks within Ukraine, from shale gas deposits that were discovered in two separate regions. Picture it this way. Ukraine went from being nowhere on the top list of natural gas holders. Overnight, they became the 14th largest reserve globally. And they didn't have the finances or the resources to do it on their own. So they started working with powers like Shell and Exxon. Not only did Russia not want to see this happening, but they didn't like the idea of Ukraine buddying up with EU partners. They do not want Ukraine to be part of the EU, and they certainly don't want them to be part of NATO. Russia claims that they annexed Crimea to protect Russian nationalists and heritage. But after the Ukrainian government toppled and a pro-EU sentiment came into power, this was an opportunity to snag up about 80% of Ukraine's offshore oil. Oh, and you know those two major regions of shale I talked about? Well, they're very close to those two breakaway republics. This kind of changes the narrative. And it's hard to say that this is all coincidental. Shell and Exxon backed out of the Ukrainian interest due to unrest and conflict, meaning Ukraine now had great resources, but no way to access or extract them. Thus, the economy suffered and was stifled drastically. Now, it doesn't go one way. Ukraine did fight back. They were providing 85% of the fresh water to Crimea. And after Russia took it over, they filled the canal with cement, add in climate change, geopolitical isolation, geographical isolation, and things are not looking good in Crimea. But alas, political allegiances are sometimes too strong. Only 2 million people live on the peninsula, and life has definitely not improved for them since the annexation. Billions has been spent to send water to them, and rationing is underway regularly. So what about the rest of us? The Associated Press had a report recently. The prices of wheat and corn are up 37% and 21% respectively, and those cost increases trickle down into other food products and categories, and when gas prices rise, so do other costs globally. The war is causing higher prices of fertilizers, which therefore will increase the cost of food products and shipping. This is stacking on top of the already record inflation, the highest in four decades that we're dealing with. This morning, I passed by gas stations at nearly $4 a gallon here in North Carolina. Yet with all the sanctions and ramifications, Russia isn't backing down. In response, other countries are jumping in. South Korea is joining the US and European nations in suspending transactions with Russia's central bank. They're also issuing a travel ban to parts of Russia and Belarus that border Ukraine. Japan is urging their nationalists to avoid travel to Russia. India is evacuating children. They currently have 700 students stranded. A temporary ceasefire was agreed to by both nations to allow the children to pass through safely on an evacuation standpoint, but Russia broke their pledges to hold form. They fired through civilian evacuations, and over the weekend a military strike hit a major evacuation crossing, killed a family with two children as well as several others trying to flee the country. Ukraine is not impressed. So what's next? The U.S. kicked out 50 Russian diplomats and their families. They left from New York to Moscow over the weekend. They asked for the removal of these diplomats. Emmanuel Macron, the president of France, discussed Ukraine's power plants and the safety surrounding them with Putin on Sunday. 
And the world is left scrambling. The Russian invasion does have an end in sight if three conditions are met. Both the Ukrainian and Russian foreign ministers are going to meet in Turkey later this week. What are those three conditions? Number one. Russia is demanding Ukraine end military actions and change its constitution to be neutral and ends the possibility of joining alliances like NATO or the EU. Number two. The NATO and US would have to remove all armed forces from Eastern Europe back to pre-1997 boundaries of NATO all the way back to Eastern Germany. This would mean leaving Poland and much of Eastern Europe in harm's way. Number three. NATO freezes their alliances and can never expand to include new members. They also can't hold any drills in Ukraine or Eastern Europe without Russian consent. Naturally, this will never happen. And if you want my honest opinion, Putin probably knows that and doesn't care. He doesn't expect these terms to be agreed to. This war, unfortunately, will continue to rage on. Though most nations around the world are supporting Ukraine, there have been some separatists that are supporting Russia. On the flip side, not everyone in Russia is standing for this. There have been reports of soldiers abandoning missions or even being captured and stating that they had no idea why they were actually going to war. They thought they were heading into a training mission on which they were attacked. A Russian entrepreneur offered a million dollar bounty for Putin's arrest. He wants to solidify that Putin is a war criminal. The CEO of Transparent Business, which is a software company, told Fortune magazine, oligarchs used to be strong supporters of Putin for one very simple reason. He was good for business, end quote. I will say, though, for a billionaire, I think a bigger bounty could have been offered, but one million is a start. Roman Abramovich, who's a Russian billionaire who's been very close to Putin in the past, noted that he would sell the Chelsea soccer team. He'd give the proceeds to the victims of the Ukrainian war. Many of these powerful oligarchs are no longer friends with Putin, and it's clear that his circle is getting smaller. Isolation will kick in. We don't really know how this will play out, but we are hopeful that Russia will abandon their fight and that the sanctions and efforts Ukraine is putting up to fight back will end this war. But what we do know is things are going to be very difficult in the short term for Ukraine. Even with billions in aid, war-torn countries can take decades to recover. They've spent billions in their own defenses. They will spend billions to rebuild. Civil services will be a necessity in the coming years with welfare, humanitarian aid, makeshift schools, orphanages for the children of deceased parents, not to mention hundreds of thousands of refugees, some who may choose not to return. There is also the element of opportunity cost. While Ukraine has been defending its land, it's lost the opportunity to grow and develop economically continue to strengthen ties with EU and NATO, and it could supply natural gas or resources to neighboring countries. Russia, on the other hand, is officially cut off from the world. Their stock market is closed, retailers and corporations are halting business, supply chain has stopped, and regulatory blocks within the nation are eliminating access to Facebook for its citizens and other social media sites claiming that they are discriminating against the Russian media outlets, when in fact they are just blocking propaganda. We are seeing these impacts worldwide. Oil prices are more than $110 a barrel right now. Add this to the challenges that we're already struggling with supply chain, not to mention inflation in the highest in 40 years, and some lobbyists are demanding that we stop importing oil from Russia altogether to the United States. If the US and its North American and European allies would follow suit, 
it would be detrimental for Russia, but it would have severe impacts on the global economy, including your wallets. Stateside, we will feel it, but not as drastically as Europe. Wall Street banks actually only have $15 billion at stake in loans to Russian borrowers. The World Data Bank noted that globally for the first time in two decades, we saw global poverty numbers increase. And if you add this Russian recession into the fold, the trend is increasing. Not only is Russia going to continue to suffer, but its neighboring countries will suffer. Some of these nations that were part of the USSR at one point often work in Russia as migrant workers. In fact, some nations rely on 30% of their economy being related to Russian work. And as that ruble is falling apart, so are these neighboring nations. Russia also produces and exports wheat, industrial metals. Have you heard about the theft of catalytic converters sweeping the world? I know it's been doing it here in the United States rampantly. And this is because palladium is up over 60%. It's used in the production of these converters and automobiles. Cargo will be even more delayed. Ukraine is not a significant trading partner for any major economy, but a lot of countries such as China, US, Germany, France, Italy, represent some of the major import partners for Russia. And Russia's invasion of Ukraine has heightened uncertainty on the outlook of the global trade for this year and years to come. Another important factor is the emigration from Ukraine. There could be 4 million refugees as this crisis unfolds, and it will depend on border controls, the length of the conflict, and how the economy settles down after the war. Keep in mind that in years following the war, people will still leave in droves due to economic stalemate and lack of opportunity. Now, I'll touch upon China quickly. A classified report noted that Chinese officials asked Russian officials to wait until after the Olympics to invade Ukraine. Russia and China have been increasing their ties for years including diplomatic and military alliances, important economic alliances, and American and Western officials know this. They tried to get China to convince Russia to stop the war. Chinese officials were skeptical that Putin would even do it, but here we are. On paper, they've taken a neutral stance. But remember, things aren't that easy for China. They're in a pinch. Though Russia is an ally, they are highly dependent upon the West for their economic stability. The Russian invasion of Ukraine is not comforting for the people of China. Many rely on the rest of the world for factory exports. And with supply chain delays and shipments being stuck at port, the cost of goods increasing, less goods are going out. They need to tread lightly as much of the world is looking at China waiting for them to make a move. And they are ready to pounce. Tian Yun, who is the former vice director of the Beijing Economic Operation Association, expects China-Europe trade to be disrupted due to the conflict in Ukraine. China's exports to Russia surged 41.5% in the first two months of the year, and imports from Russia rose 35.5%. So what does Russia really want out of this? So maybe they want to secure a few regions of Ukraine. Maybe they want to free up the canal for their struggling water supply. Maybe they want to completely take hold of Ukraine, growing Russia's foothold, isolate people from the West and NATO, increase their oil and natural resource supply. But what could be next after this? Historians are saying Moldova could be next, another small former Soviet Union state that is not part of NATO. And though this resurgence of support for Ukraine may seem like they're closer to joining NATO, I actually think it might be the opposite. Under Article 5 of the NATO Treaty, if you mess with one of us, you mess with all of us. Thus, member nations are to back their allies in times of crisis and war. Conflict-ridden nations are not likely to become part of an alliance with such a requirement. I'll continue to follow this closely in the coming weeks. 
and I may post an update episode soon. Thank you if you took the time to listen to this whole thing. Some food for thought. If you are not in Ukraine, just think about how fortunate you are. When you fill up your tank, are buying groceries, you might be spending more than you want to. But at least you are not ironing a tag on your child's sweater with their blood type, or standing in a pile of rubble that was once your home. The economic impacts of this crisis will be drastic, but I'll be here to report on it. Together we'll own that road to financial freedom, and I'm really glad you're joining me for it. I want to hear from you. Have a topic you'd like discussed? A suggestion? You can contact me on Instagram, Facebook, email, and more. Check out the description for my link tree. I look forward to hearing from you. The show is written and edited by me. A lot of work goes into these episodes, and I really hope you enjoy them. Until next time on Finance Fundamentals.